If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hello and welcome to Minigame, a podcast about video game stories and why we love them. I'm Michael Ferris. In part one in my series on the cinematic inspirations of game designer Hideo Kojima, I analyzed Kojima experimenting with telling stories in games long before the technology was available to make what we currently think of as a cinematic story. Those experiments eventually culminated into Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty, an ambitious postmodern take on the information age that seems more poignant now than when it was released back in 2001. Also, there's giant robots and vampires and a lady who magnetically repels bullets. It's a weird game. For MGS2, Kojima took the philosophical overtones of films of the time, like Fight Club and The Matrix, and combined them with lowbrow action stylings of a Michael Bay or James Cameron film. Some fans, however, were not happy with the new direction of the series. So for the prequel, Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater, we go back to basics with an action game with political intrigue and stealth and spying and femme fatales who play both sides of the conflict. For those who never played it before, listen to a bit of the theme song and guess the main inspiration for Snake Eater. What a fear in my heart, but you're so supreme. That's right, Metal Gear Solid 3 is effectively a James Bond game. It tells the story of Solid Snake's father, Naked Snake, and how he starts to fall from grace. From being an honored soldier for the US military, to become Big Boss, the main villain of the first two Metal Gear games from the 80s. We go back to the Cold War era, specifically 1964, and as the year suggests, the game pays a ton of homage to the Sean Connery era of 007. From the Cold War setting itself, over-the-top villains, goofy sci-fi plans of those villains, and a big action climax, Snake Eater is basically a greatest hits clip show of Goldfinger and from Russia with Love scenes. The tone of the game is similarly campy. Snake himself is a bit of a goofball who laughs to himself and nerds out over the cool equipment he gets. The supporting cast is also full of endearing weirdos. Your commanding officer, Major Zero, maintains a stiff British demeanor, but get him started on talking about the James Bond books, and he starts talking like how Marvel fans talk now. Exactly, don't you like about James Bond? I mean, is it the fantastic gadgets, the cars, the guns? Major. Snake, wouldn't you like to have a gun shaped like a pen? What good is a pen gonna do me in the jungle? I'd look like a fool. Then what about a snake-shaped gun? You can make it look like you're grappling with a giant snake and then get a shot in on the enemy while they're distracted. Okay, now you're being ridiculous. Your field guide, paramedic, loves B-movies, and calling her in order to save the game leads into crazy conversations about some weird sci-fi or horror movie that she loves. Hey, Snake, you ever heard of Godzilla, King of Monsters? No, what is it? It's a movie. You haven't seen it? Nope. It's about this monster called Godzilla who grows to an enormous size in a nuclear test and goes on a rampage in Tokyo. Nuclear test, huh? 
Then the Marshall Islands must be crawling with giant monsters right about now. It's just make-believe. And your weapons expert, Sigint, is the token cool black guy character and is maybe the only completely sane character in the game. And he's constantly bemused by the crazy people he has to work with. Snake, you smoking a cigarette? It's not a cigarette. It's a cigar. Ah, uh, same thing? It's not the same thing. Why am I the only one who can tell the difference? Doesn't matter to me. What I want to know is, why'd you take it with you? Because I need it. For what? I can't smoke a cigar if I don't have one, can I? So you just wanted to smoke it? Yeah. Man, you got problems. Do what you want. Just keep in mind that your life goes down when you're smoking it. The filmmaking techniques used in the cutscenes for Snake Eater are similarly grounded in classic Hollywood styles. Most video game cutscenes are filmed with ethereal cameras with no limits as to where they can go in a scene and what they can show. The Uncharted series is a good example of this. Those action scenes have cameras that speed up, slow down, and move in ways that no real-life camera can. It's great for showing off a ton of spectacle, but for me it removes a lot of senses of danger from action scenes. Fight scenes in many comic book movies also feature similar cameras during their CGI-filled action scenes. Watch the end fights in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 or Batman vs. Superman, and notice that the camera does not move realistically at all. Kojima keeps his cameras firmly planted in the reality of his scenes, and the physical closeness of the camera to the characters makes us care more about the action that is happening. Other camera movements mimic their real-life counterparts. Tracking shots look like they're filmed on real dollies, overhead shots mimic the momentum of helicopter shots, and wide panning shots are uniformly placed on hills and other environmental objects in the scene. And the handheld camera work from 2 is back as well, but used sparingly and only when a scene seems to benefit from it. Almost every shot in a cutscene in Snake Eater could have also been done in the 60s when the James Bond movies were just coming out. Copying Hollywood so closely may sound gimmicky, but the execution of these techniques are there to trick us into feeling the same emotions we would feel if the same things were happening to characters played by live-action actors. Which now brings us to Metal Gear Solid 4 Guns of the Patriots. Oh boy. Full disclosure, I really hate Metal Gear Solid 4. Instead of Metal Gear Solid 4's storytelling having some form of outside inspiration, the only inspiration driving the storytelling of 4 is Kojima himself and the previous games in the series. Metal Gear Solid 2 left a lot of unanswered questions, but they were intentionally left open to interpretation. But rabid fans demanded answers, and publisher Konami loves money. So by hell or high water, those questions are going to be answered, and a direct sequel to Metal Gear Solid 2 was reluctantly made. Now, I don't know what went through Kojima's mind during the development of 4, but the reluctance to tie up the loose ends shows throughout the entire game. Dialogue scenes are frequently shot in standard shot-reverse-shot that any freshman film school student learns in their first week. The dialogue itself drones on and on and on about its own techno-babble, and it becomes easy to tune out and miss important information. When the dialogue in scenes becomes boring, we transition to voiceovers over weird infographics that look like they were hastily thrown together by high school students learning After Effects for the first time. It's a dull, dry march to some of the most unsatisfying answers imaginable. Now, I'm not going to go into detail since that would literally take hours. Instead, I would recommend watching essayist George Weedman's YouTube series, 
critical close-up if you really want to dive into the specifics of this insanity. The filmmaking itself is fine, but uninspired. Action scenes are kinetic and fun enough, but could easily appear in any video game of the time. The camera moves around wherever the scene needs to be in order to get a cool shot, but there's no unique flair or perspective in the storytelling. The cutscenes just show exactly what we need to see in order for us to move on to the next plot point. The game also reeks in nostalgia bait. During cutscenes, anytime there's a reference to a previous title in the series, there's a button prompt that allows you to have flashbacks to the referenced game, and these prompts are everywhere in nearly every cutscene in the game. This bland filmmaking wouldn't be so terrible if the cutscenes weren't also so freaking long. Individual cutscenes frequently last more than 5 minutes, and cutscenes between acts are around 20 plus minutes long, and the ending cutscene is over an hour, and it's all dull, bland dialogue. It gives me horrible Star Wars prequel flashbacks. But hey, fans got their answers, and the game reviewed well, so what do I know? We have one more game to go in this series, and I think it's the most important one in order to look into the mind of Hideo Kojima and what we can anticipate from Death Stranding, Metal Gear Solid V. Join us next time, and thank you for listening. Executive producer of the Lore Party Podcast Network is Abu Zafar. Minigame is written and produced by Michael Ferris. Original music for Minigame is produced by Lawrence Kelly. Follow Lore Party on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. And check out our website at loreparty.com. Subscribe to Minigame in your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps me grow the show. Thank you very much for listening.